One, two, one, two. This is Major Journalism with David Trump, Big Shanks. Another episode presented by the People versus Anti People. I am your host, David Trump, Big Shanks. Um, we're here today bringing a real important conversation and a, a real timely conversation, a real important conversation. Um, it's funny when I first putting this episode together, my lady actually asked me like, okay, so what does this topic have to kind of do with your platform in terms of, you know, uplifting and enlightening um, people, particularly from um, our diaspora. And I said, it's funny because we talk about healing and anything that we want to do beyond in terms of being self-determined people or, or in terms of um, bringing any type of justice to um, this country and to our treatment in this country, it's going to have to start with healing. And one of the uh, biggest things that we need to heal from is sort of this trauma that we inflict on ourselves through way of um, violence. Um, and, Ironically, and I've touched on this in previous episodes, just, you know, what I've been going through in kind of rediscovering myself and dealing with my own stuff, my own issues, my own trauma, you know what I mean? And the irony of my rap name obviously being Trom and kind of rediscovering what that means for me and starting to peel back on my own personal trauma. Um, Domestic violence is something that I have endured, I myself, um, by way of my mother, I'm a victim of domestic violence. And so even just on a personal level, this conversation that we're about to have is a very, very important one. I'm here with Nisha Himes, founder and CEO of GROW, GROW Foundation, that's Girls Recognizing Our Worth, It is a 501c3 organization out of Chesapeake, Virginia. Um, Nisha Himes is an advocate, activist, artist, and has uh, dedicated very much of her um, personal time and energy in um, advocacy for domestic violence victims. So uh, Nisha, uh, welcome to the Major Journalism Show. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm excited. I appreciate you. Thank you. Absolutely. 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 Now, um, I guess for background information and purposes, I know you as a beautiful disaster. Yeah. You know, the lyricist, (laughs) spoken word artist, and also, um, you know, your family's my family. So um, that's our connection. But talk about, I guess, your journey from just artists to advocate? How did we, you know, embark on this journey of, I guess, personal healing and then advocating for the healing of others? Oh, that's a loaded question. Um, But it's an important question. 
So basically, well, you know, a native of New Jersey, that's my hometown. And um, as far as just being an artist, I've always been a writer, been writing since I was little, you know, poetry, short stories and things like that. And eventually I moved from Jersey to VA, I would say in about like 2004, 2005, I moved. And it was here that I found spoken word. I think the first time I actually, the first time I ever performed spoken word was in like an open mic in Philly. Like I walked in, um, I had never spit before, went in there, had something to get off my chest, said it, got a standing O and then walked out. And now (laughs) knowing what I know now, I'm like, that is such improper etiquette. Like you're not supposed to spit and split, but you know, that's, that's what I did at the time. So writing just has always been very therapeutic for me. So here it is. I moved to VA. I moved. My son was about um, three years old at the time and just wanted to get, just start over, get something new. Um, My dad had moved here first a couple of years before me and just said it was a nice area. I'm in a Hampton Roads area. So like Virginia Beach, Chesapeake Mm -hmm. and all of that. So got into a relationship, um, you know, after moving here with my daughter's father, we were together for a few years and it, it didn't work out. So after leaving that relationship, so I'm in a vulnerable place. Now I have two children and statistically it's like two children, two different dads, you know, didn't work out with either their dads. And I'm in this place where it's like, well, what's wrong with me? You know what I mean? Mm. Like just not necessarily seeing the value in myself and just understanding that sometimes relationships don't work out. Even when you have the best intentions, it, it just may not work out. So at the time I was working for this law firm and there was this coworker of mine, she would tell me all the time, like, I want to introduce you to my brother. You know, I think y'all would hit it off. Um, y'all got the same personality, sense of humor, things like that. And I was like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm good. You know, just got out of something not long ago. So not really looking to get into anything else. So she would keep hounding me, so to speak, like, just like, girl, where are you going to be my brother kind of thing? <laughs> and one day she had a birthday party. And I remember I was like really sick, like, like cough and sneezy headache that that NyQuil commercial and Mm -hmm. um I still went and I met her brother and we hit it off so we was you know my family so you know we love to dance so we like dance we battling we we telling jokes and stuff and at the end of the night he asked me for my phone number and I just remember saying uh I don't know I kind of just got out of something and even at this point it had been like going on a year since I've been out of the relationship with my daughter's father, but I was like, I'm not really ready. So later that night I thought about it and I was like, you know what? Why not? Like, why not? It's it's eventually got to get back into the dating game. We hit it off. It's something different. So, you know, what's the, what's the harm in doing so? So reached out to my friend and I was like, yo, you know, your brother asked me for his number. Let me like, can you pass my number to him? So reached out, we started talking, um, having, you know, in the beginning, it's the what you're doing, <laughs> the mm-hmm. WID mm-hmm. text and how's mm-hmm. your day? Good morning, beautiful, all of that. And um, it's going fine. I didn't, knowing what I know now, I didn't recognize like red flags. I didn't know, you know, that there were just some things I needed to pay more attention to. Because when we think about domestic violence, we think about just very blatant signs of abuse like bruises and things like that but it's not how it happens it's a very gradual process 
So um, I remember we were like maybe two, three months into talking. So we hadn't established like, oh, we're, we're dating, we're official or anything like that, but we still in a get to know you phase. And he confronted me about a text message he saw in my phone between my daughter's father and myself. And it was something very innocent. Like, I don't even remember what it was, but it was something along the lines of like, when you coming to get her, when you, you know, I'm bringing her, whatever, like co-parenting type of message. Right, right. And he has children himself. And again, in hindsight, at the time, he'd be like, oh, my child's mother, she crazy, she this, she that. They didn't have a good relationship. So I think he looked at it like he didn't understand healthy co-parenting. So um, he was very, it was kind of accusatory, like, well, what's these messages? What's what's going on? Y'all talk all the time, it seems. And I'm just like, I find myself explaining myself, like, yo, it's not like that. It Like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I didn't even question the fact that he went through my phone. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't even right. think, like, you went through my phone to go through this history of messages and whether the messages are talking about co-parenting or whether it's talking about our family unit or whatever, like you still cross that boundary. And um, he was very just like my feelings are hurt. You know, I thought we really liked each other. And I was like, you know, we do. So, I, so from there, he didn't trust me. Right. And, um, Again, the woman that I am now, like, as I'm saying this out loud, I'm just like, it, I probably would have handled it way different if I was the woman that I am now. Yeah, but that's in. what growth, that's what but growth, that's what growth yeah, is, right? Yeah. So um, <laughs> he he was very, from that point, anytime I got a phone call, if I didn't, if I didn't answer in like two rings or three rings, and it's like, who was you on the other line with? Who was you talking to? I didn't have, mm. I didn't have men around my children. So in my day-to-day was going to work, um, you know, being a mom, coming home, being a mom, homework, schoolwork, bedtime, dinner, stuff like that. So he couldn't come over. When it got to the point where he was allowed to my house, he couldn't come over till after my kids were asleep. So it's like, you right. can't come over till like after nine o'clock, then you can only stay for a little bit and you got to go back home. But if it was people calling me at seven o'clock and I'm not answering, who was you on the phone with? Was your child's father over there? And it's like, no, I'm, I'm fixing the kids dinner or put my daughter in the bath or helping them on homework. So, again, explaining myself over little things. Um, my spoken word became a source of contention for him as well. Like you always had open mics because I was really heavy in a open mic scene at the time. So mm. it was like. You always go on open mics. I barely get to see you. Um, you always work in. If you're not working, you're with the kids. If you're not with the kids, you at an open mic. Like, don't you want to spend as much time with me? Like, I just want to see you. So then I find myself isolating myself from things that I love. Like, I love poetry. I love spoken word. I love open mics. But I'm like, okay, you right. You know what? He's right. I do work all the time. I am on mom, mommy mode all the time. So let me just stop using so much of my free time as far as hanging out with my girls or going to these open mics and spend more time with him because he needs that. And I made him insecure by the messages that he saw in my phone between myself mm -hmm. and my child's father. So I found myself always trying to prove how much I liked him to prove that he mm -hmm. didn't need to be insecure to prove that he could trust me. So then 
it was more things. It was um, why you, you know, why you got to go to this open mic tonight? You know, why you got to do that? Why can't I just come over? Why can't you just talk to me? Why are you wearing this? Who, who was that poem about? Who are you writing about mm. when you say that? I don't want you have too many male friends. So again, these are all red flags. But at the time, I'm this broken woman who didn't work out in these long-term relationships that I had before him. Um, he seemed to, he had a good job. He was doing well for himself. He was a good dad. So I was just like, all right, I just need to fix some things on my end because it was things with me that obviously didn't work out with the relationships prior to. So let me just fix me so that I can mm. fix us. So let me let me um let me ask because mm -hmm. you you mentioned red flags. Yeah. Um and so now that you're doing the advocacy work and I'm we're going to get back to kind right. of um how we got there but just so that we're following along. Right. What what now that you are on the other side of that right. what are those red flags? Um one you were vulnerable going in, right? So right. that's always that seems to be how it happens a lot. There's always a vulnerability, maybe an insecurity on the um, um, survivor's end. Right. They, you know, that makes them susceptible to, right. to some of this sometimes. But what are those, is it like the uh, the controlling right. behavior? Like what are the red flags? Like what are they identified as that you, you know, recognize after the fact right. in, like, in this gentleman's behavior? So... With abuse, it often doesn't start off when I, whenever I talk to survivors, whether it's female, male, whoever, I talk to people in the community. It's not like you go on your first date and then somebody punches you in your face and you're like, damn, they abusive. Like, that's not how it works. You know, it's a gradual process. So you have that control, you have that manipulation, you have that isolation. But even before it gets to that point, you, a lot of people don't know about love bombing. So love bombing is mm. like when you get into a relationship and it's moving very quickly. So if you're talking to someone for like a week or two and they're saying stuff like, I could, you know what? I see it's destined to be together. This is fate. I think you're my soulmate. I can't see you with anybody else. If they're showering you with over affection, you know, like extravagant gifts or popping up with flowers and everything, just showing up at your house and just, it's just moving very quickly. And it's not to be confused with courting because there's a difference between courting somebody and being in healthy relationships and, you know, someone showing in a healthy manner that they truly appreciate you and like spending time with you. But then there's a method of where it's the love bombing, where I'm going to shower you with all of these things. It's, it's like a trap. It's like a web. And then when you do something to piss me off, I'm going to take it from you real quick. I'm going to take it. So you saw what you could get and you saw how quickly I could take it away from you. So now what you, what you going to do to get that affection back from me? Mm. So it's like dropping little, you know, think about Hansel and Greta, like they're dropping a breadcrumb so they can find their way back. So it's like, that's what they're doing. They're sharing you, they're snatching it back. And then they'll drop these little breadcrumbs of affection here and there and make you crawl pretty much. <laughs> to get mm -hmm. it back. So definitely that isolation, if it's the little things like, you know what, why are you spending so much time with your friends? You love, let's say you love hanging out with your family. You love playing basketball. You love dancing. You love going to parties, the library, whatever. But this person is trying to monopolize your time. They're telling, saying things like gaslighting is very big. 
gaslighting is that's such a manipulative and effective form of emotional and psychological abuse because mm. it is used to convince the victim to make them question their perception of reality, their judgment. So if for me, in an instance with me and him, I'm going to these open mics and he's like, don't you really, don't you care about me as much as I care about you? If you did, mm. don't you think that it would be easy for you to give up the open mics? And it's easy for me to stop hanging out with my friends. So I'm like, I do care about him. And, you know, all right, it isn't so much to just give up an open mic this time. Well, let me give it up next time. Or it could be if they say something out of pocket and then you question him on it, like he would say things like, you know what, it doesn't take a genius to see that, you know, this is how you're supposed to carry yourself in a relationship. It's not Mm. rocket science, Mm. you know? And then if I say something like, who are you talking to? Because at the same time, I'm this broken woman, but I'm also this right, woman I'm from saying, Jersey. You're like, you, like, yeah, I'm from Jersey. Yeah. Like, what are we doing? So um, he's like, oh, I was just joking. You sensitive. You being dramatic. You overreacting. Mm. So then you start questioning, am I sensitive? Am I being dramatic? Am I overreacting? Or they flip it like, you know, it's not my fault. You made it so that I can't trust you. I'm just, I just had a bad day. I'm just stressed out. I'm just, you know, you got to be more patient with me the same way I'm patient with you. So it just always comes back to you as a victim mm. survivor It always. So you start questioning yourself. And mm. the, the thing about gaslighting is if I can make you question your perception of reality, then when, as the abuse gets more severe and more frequent, you really question as to whether that's happening because you're already questioning everything around you. So you don't even get that. This is what's actually happening to you too. Mm. So you said um, at this point, you, um, you guys still weren't official official yet, but it's pers- is gradually um, getting into that space. And so kind of, on that trajectory, mm-hmm. although all these red flags are there, mm-hmm. you're kind of moving through yes. into this relationship. And then eventually, obviously, things get more serious. Yes. Take us through, I guess, you know, in that continue on that journey of mm-hmm. how things get to a head. And then, you oh, know, you here. have to. Exactly. So the thing about abuse. um, as you much see. as you're comfortable oh, sharing. Yeah. No, I, yeah, thank you. I that. Oh, and I meant <laughs> yeah. to, I always try to give a trigger warning before I start talking about this because it's statistically, it's going to be survivors of domestic violence who are listening to this. So if I say something or between me and trauma or saying anything that's triggering, just please be mindful of your mental health, your mental space. Take that break. Grounding techniques are, you know, if you got to count to 10. Um, count from 10 backwards, take some deep breaths, things like that. Take a step away from the podcast because it's important. And this thing, talking about this while it's needed, it can be triggering for those who have experienced it or witnessed it. So I did just want to preface it by saying that. So fast forward, we we decide to get, you know, we're in this monogamous relationship. And um, with the thing with abuse, it's not always bad. So when we had good times, we had great time. So he was really funny. I was attracted to the way he was with his children, how he doted on his daughters, um, how he dressed, you know, our conversations. We liked the same things. Uh, He was smart. And, you know, I love chocolate chip cookies. So he would do things like bake chocolate chip cookies for me and just little things. So it's not always bad. So that's another thing you hold on to 
like it's not always bad there's good times too so i just got to make them love me more mm. i just got to make them uh trust me more and and i can i can fix him that's all that's mm. what it is i can fix this i can fix him i can fix me so we fast forward and at this time i'm in this just blatant not that i not knowing what i know now i'm in this blatantly abusive relationship but i'm not seeing it as such because he hadn't yet put his hands on me so right. even though he would say things like make me talk condescendingly to me, uh, make me feel dumb sometimes. Um, yeah, he had gotten into the name calling at first. It'd be like, you're so stupid. You know, you only a stupid person would do something like this. So again, I'm not recognizing it as DV because I would talk slick back, like watch your mm. mouth, like watch how you talk to me. But you keep talking to someone a certain way. You keep belittling someone eventually those words, those things start sticking. So it'd be like, oh, why do mm. you think your last two relationships didn't work wow. out? You right, know, it can't, right. who's the common denominator is you, mm. you know what I mean? Mm. You're the one with two kids, two different dads, or look at you, you working in this dead end job at this law firm. You're going to be in a cubicle for the rest of your life. I got this great job and, you know, I'm on my way to becoming a homeowner. And here I am, this struggling mother, not a single mother because my kids, dad, they were active, but still struggling all the same. So it got to a point where it was just very toxic in how he, our arguments, his insecurity, his jealousy, he would, I swear, like, you don't answer this phone in two rings, then it's going to be an issue. You know, you rejected my call. Who are you talking to? You know, who's on the other line popping up at my house? Um, it, it was just... It was so much. And at the same time, I, I'm, it's slowly chipping away at my self-esteem. It's getting to the mm. point where I just hated what I saw in the mirror. And I blame myself for all the things I was not, all the things mm. we were not in our relationship. So at some point during this time, I'm going through financial struggles. And um, it's to the point where I'm going to lose my house, the apartment I was staying in. So... My daughter's dad, not only he was in my daughter's life, very active father, um, see her all the time, but he was in my son's life as well. So it got to a point where I was like, yo, I'm about to lose my house. Um, I need the kids to come stay with you while I figure out what I'm going to do. Because I'm not going to have my kids just bouncing around while because I, I couldn't do what I was supposed to do as a mother. That's how I looked at it. So. Right. I, my family in Jersey, very close with them, as you know, talk to my sisters, my mother all the time. My dad is here. And I just, I didn't tell anybody what was going on with me because I was embarrassed. I didn't even understand really what's going on with me. But at this point, I'm in a abusive relationship that I'm not recognizing as abusive. I am going through depression, going through anxiety, going through financial struggles, struggles, and I'm losing my house. So I remember I'm, I'm like, getting evicted and knocking on my neighbor's doors and saying, yo, I'm, I'm being evicted. And then watching them come and go furniture shopping in my house and carrying mm. out couches and, and tables and things. And what I could salvage, I did, but what I didn't have room for in my storage or in the truck or whatever, I just let people take. Wow. And I'll never forget, because um, I think my son was in Jersey visiting his dad and my daughter was there, but she was so little. She didn't, she just didn't understand why people was taking like our paintings and things like that. So kids went to stay with my daughter's dad who, and he's in the area. So, and for nine months, 
they stayed. And for nine months, my life consisted of, so I'm in this abusive relationship and he knew that I lost my place, but he thought that I told him that I was going to be staying with a girlfriend. And he thought that my kids were staying with me at this mm. girlfriend's house, because if I told him that they was at my daughter's father's, it would just be a whole nother. So, and I would stay with him on a weekend. So he thought Monday through Friday, I'm with the kids at my daughter, my friend's house. And then on the weekends, they at the dad's house. Right. But so really, reverse. Yeah. Right. So right. my, for nine months, my days consisted of, I would go to work. Well, I would go to his house. He had a whole girlfriend. He now married now. We good friends. And I'm just like, I don't even know how she let that slide, but I would go to his <laughs> house in the morning, um, have breakfast with my kids, see them off for school. I would go to work, work. I, I remember at, like right before five o'clock, I would go in the bathroom a lot and cry. Like when I would hear people talk about, oh, I can't wait to go home. I got this in the crock pot. I'm gonna watch my favorite show. I'm gonna get some wine or whatever. And I didn't have that and I missed my kids. And again, nobody knew what was going on. So then after work, I would go back to his house, have dinner, school, do schoolwork with them. And uh, then I would go and find somewhere to sleep. So whether that was staying at a friend's house on a couch, whether that was in a friend's, I remember a friend had a makeshift garage, but she had like a love seat and, and sofa wow. um, couch in there. Like, but it was free. It wasn't insulated. So it was like freezing in there. Um, sometimes it was my car. Sometimes it was hotel and I couldn't tell him. So he, I'll call him Ike for the purpose of this. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't tell Ike what was going on because he would accuse me of sleeping around. He, so I couldn't tell him, oh, I'm sleeping at a hotel tonight. I'm, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. So this whole time he's thinking I'm at a girlfriend's house. And I remember one time being at my daughter's father's house and I was helping her with her homework, helping the kids and he called and my daughter, I think she was using a calculator or something on my phone, but she answered the call by mistake. So I'm on the phone like, hey, hey. And he could hear my daughter's father talking in the back. So he's like, who that? Like, where, where are you? And I ran from the table. I ran outside. It was a, it was a thunderstorm. And I'm wow. on a porch. Like, and mind you, he hadn't hit me. He hadn't hit me yet. So I'm on the porch like, oh, no, that was just a TV. And, you know, baby girl was watching something. I'm helping them with their homework. I'm at such as I'm at my girl's house. I'll see you later or whatever. And then my daughter's father came out like, what's going on? Why are you on the porch in the rain? And I just I wanted to tell him so bad what was going on, but I was humiliated. I didn't want him to get involved in my mess. I didn't want I to think I was cheating on him. I didn't want daughter's father's girl to feel like I'm dragging him in something. Wow. So I just so kept you're taking all of this, taking all of this on yourself. Yes. In the and me, yeah. And meanwhile, my family's still calling like, Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. Everything is good. So nobody knew what's happening. So eventually to fast forward, I got tired of, I would often spend a night at hotels, whether it was a little $60 night hotels where it was a little shaky situation outside or whether it was a nice Marriott's just because I wanted to sleep in a bed and I'm spending like $200 for the night. So I said, I can't get my kids back if I keep spending money like this. So I told, I, well, he offered to let me move in with him because he's mm. like, oh, I know you're paying your friend rent. So um, just come, just come stay with me. You can save your money. So I went and I moved with him. And then that's when it got the physical abuse started. Mm. Uh, 
the first time he put his hands on me, I remember we was watching, uh, I feel like we was watching Walking Dead. <laughs> or I came home from work. I went to his house. I remember everything. I remember what I had on. I remember I worked late and he accused me of being out with somebody you're cheating or whatever. So he's calling me all types of names. Are you a whore? You this, you that, you a slut, you a bitch. You... So at this point, this abuse, mental, verbal control, gaslighting, even though I didn't know the words for it at the time, I knew something was wrong and I have been going through it. So not only am I going through this for years with you, I, I'm already on edge, like depressed every day. I don't have my kids with me and you treat me like trash. So I was like, I'm done. I'm not... I'm not dealing with this anymore. So I remember my purse was in between the space of the, the bed and the wall. And I bent down to pick up my purse. And when I turned around, he had a pillow and he hauled off and he slapped me so hard with this pillow that I fell off the bed. And mm. it, it's like, you looking, it's like, all right, a pillow. It was, it hurt, but my pride hurt the most. Right. And I remember jumping up and squaring up because again, Jersey. <laughs> so I squared up and he fought me like I was some dude off the block. Like he, wow. he, and the thing is, if you have been strangled by your partner, you are 10 times more likely to be killed by that partner. He strangled mm. the first time he assaulted me, he strangled me. So mm. we're fighting and he's strangling me in between the space of the floor and the the, in between the bed and the wall. So, and I'm kicking him. I had on these really cute leopard heels. And it's crazy what you remember when you go through trauma, when you're in a traumatic right, situation right. and things. I remember having these gray slacks on, these leopard heels and this green frilly shirt. And I'm kicking him and he's strangling me. And the look on his face, I had never seen that look. And my mouth is bleeding because he had like punched me in my face. You know, I'm swinging. And at some point I start to lose consciousness. And I just remember thinking like, I'm going to die right here in this space, in this wall, because, and nobody knows where I am because nobody knew yeah. I was living with him for real either. So nobody at that moment knew where I was. I could have died right there and mm. nobody would have known. Mm. So um, I ran out the but house. That's, that's the isolation you're talking right. about by that point right. in time. Right. right. So I ran out the house. Um, I was crying. He ran out after me. He was crying. He was apologizing. And he was like, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't know what happened. I was so mad. I'm so sorry, baby. I'm sorry. And just come back. Just come back. And I went back. And mm -hmm. why? And people asked, well, I didn't have anywhere else to go. And for me, I needed to get my kids back. So when we talk about why survivors, they go back, why don't they quote unquote just leave? Well, one, the most dangerous time for a victim of domestic violence is when they're trying to leave because abuse is about power and control. And that abuser is losing that power and control when that victim decides to take their power back and leave the situation. So fear, um, no resources, lack of support. So had I, had I been comfortable with sharing what I was going through with my family, my friends, I definitely would have had the support, but I was too ashamed. Right. I was too embarrassed. I was afraid. And then when you think, when you think of yourself as not deserving of anything better, when you think you deserve what's happening to you, you don't see a way out. Mm -hmm. And then it happened again and it happened again and it happened again and it happened again. And um, the last time he put his hands on me, I remember I was working overtime and I worked at a, a mortgage company at the time, a bank, Bank of America. And 
uh, there was an event on a Saturday and they asked us to decorate this banquet hall for it. And it's crazy, like, because and looking back, the event was for and to benefit a domestic violence agency. Wow. Yeah. In the area, a shelter that houses, you know, just various people in crisis, including domestic violence victims and their children. So I remember decorating this banquet hall. It was at this beautiful hotel in downtown Norfolk. And I sent him a picture of how we decorated the room. It looked like something out of a wedding, like a magazine. And he responded. He was like, who are those dudes? Who are those men in the picture? So I'm like, I zoom in. Yeah, I zoom in. And I look and way in the back of the picture, you see these two men carrying a table into the room. So I was like, I don't know who they are. Like, they're carrying a table. So he's like, oh, you, you, that's why you went to work. You a slut, you a whore, you this, you. So all the things that I was accustomed to using, you a dumb bitch, you a dumb black bitch. Da, 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 da. So at that point, I was like, uh-uh, I, I, I can't. I can't. I have been through so much. So, um, and it, I was still living with him. So after I got off, I raced to his house. We're arguing the whole time on the phone. And I was like, I'm just coming to get my stuff. I, I don't know. Is this censored? Because I that's I said I'm coming to get my shit. No, oh, I said I'm coming good. to get my shit. Okay. So I go in and we used to always pack. He had this curving driveway. So I parked in the back and we used to always go through the back door that led into the laundry utility room that had a door that led into the living room. I hated that utility room. I remember he locked me in there one time because he said, this is where bitches sleep. So I remember being locked in that utility room, you know, before. And just all I'm thinking about all these things um, as I'm walking up to this door. So I had just got, I remember just getting a new Galaxy (laughs) and I didn't know how to work the phone like that. And he's, he wouldn't let me in the living room. So I'm like, I just want to get my shit. Like, just let me in. And he's like screaming on the other side of the door. And then finally he just like breaks down his own door. And that, I remember trying to call 911, but I couldn't figure out how to get to that particular screen on the phone. And he knocked my phone out my hand. And it was the worst assault that it had been. And at this point, Trump, I didn't fight back because I was tired of fighting. Mm. Wow. So for me, you got two hands. It was trying to decide whether to cover my face, cover my my stomach. Uh, I was being thrown into walls. Um, I was being strangled. I was being kicked. I mean, I was just remember being curled up into a ball, just covering just whatever I could and just the words he was saying to me. Um, and I just wanted to die. I just, I just... I didn't want to fight anymore and I just wanted to die. And um, after it was done, I remember jumping up and screaming at him. I started like jumping up and down and I was like, look at me, look at me. And I had on a t-shirt, had the Bank of America flag on it. I said, I was at work. I was at work. And he moved my bangs out my face and he kissed me on my forehead. And he was like, you seem upset. Let me get you something to drink. And he got me like wow. a Capri Sun or one of his daughters, like high seat bo- juice boxes or something like that. And I grabbed what I could and I went to my son's soccer game. Like nothing happened. So went to my son's soccer game. Kids are running up to me, hugging me and stuff. And I'm in a lot of pain. Right. And, right. Uh, but it was more pain than normal. 
So I went back to his house because again, after my son's soccer game, I was like, nah, the, the goal, the plan, I got to get my kids. I got to get my kids. I got to get my kids. So um, to backtrack real quick, I had tried to ask for help before it got to this point. I remember, I remember calling this local radio station because they used to have this segment where people could call in and tell a secret. And, um, and the people was calling in and saying things like, Oh, you, I got a crush on my best friend or I had an affair or I'm about to lose quit my job or whatever, just stuff like that. And I remember calling in and saying that I was being abused. I think I said, I think I'm in an abusive relationship. And it was a male host, a female host, and a dude. He laughed, and wow. um, like he busts out laughing. Yeah. He was like, Pfft. like you know, it was just kind of like what, like. And the girl, she kind of did like a smirk thing. She's like, Pfft. like, sis, why don't you just leave? Like, just leave. Wow. You, why are you letting this man put his hands on you? So, I remember hanging up and um, crying in my car. And years later, I found out that my coworker saw me that day, like gripping the steering wheel and like screaming in my car and she wow. didn't know how to approach me and asked right. me what was wrong. Right. And um I had called a shelter at some point and they asked me if I had been assaulted. I this was, was this was another time I called and they said, well, have you been assaulted today, tonight? I was like, no. And they said basically they told me I wasn't in imminent danger. Right. Because I hadn't been assaulted that day. That particular day. Yeah. Because I remember asking, she was like, are you being assaulted now? And I said, ma'am, are you asking if I'm being beat? Get my ass beat now? And said, oh, hold on, let me make a call real quick. No. And uh, she said, well, I'm sorry, we don't have room for you. You got to call us back if something happens. I said, I'm trying to prevent something from happening. So that particular incident is one of the main reasons why I started growing in the first place. Like hearing that advocate tell me you're not in enough danger. So anyway, back to, went back to his house after the soccer game, was in a lot of pain. This point I had just started, um, I didn't, my health insurance, I don't think had kicked in yet from working at Bank of America. So I was afraid to go to the doctor, but I wound up going. Uh, the nurse asked, the intake nurse asked me, why was I there? It was late at night. I said, I got into a fight with my boyfriend. And it was the first time like that. You I were felt able like to somebody, stay. Yeah. Right. And she asked me if I wanted her to call the police. I told her no. I was like, please don't. And then not knowing now, like in doing this work in Virginia, like this DV, they have to call. So she called anyway. And I was so mad when I was in the hospital room and the cop walked in and I'm sitting on the hospital bed and he's like, I need a name. I said, I can't give you that. He's like, I need a name. I said, I can't give you that. He said, why can't you give me that? He said, you're a young woman, you pretty woman, you're sitting on this house, you're in a hospital. I said, I can't give you that because I got to leave. I got to go back there when I leave here. And he just gave me his card. He told me I had a year to press charges. And he left. Didn't give me a hotline number. Didn't say, oh, this is who you can call. Nothing. And I left with broken ribs, um, a type 2 concussion, and bruises. And a broken spirit. Just broken everything. Of course. Of course. And I went back there? And I went back. And I, wow. so that was the last time he put his hands on me, but it wasn't the last time he abused me. And when I say that, people are like, well, what you mean? It's the last time he put his hands on me. Well, no, I'm still getting called a bitch. I'm still getting called this and that. So he started going to therapy. 
he started saying, we're going to fix it. We're going to make it work. So it wouldn't be until, so that was March of 2012. It wouldn't be to the end of that year where I officially left, where we got into some argument and he was calling me out my name. Um, he's saying, you know, it's all the same old, same old. And in that argument, he called my mother and my sisters a nigger. So the important part of the story is that he was white. Whoa! <laughs> I always say that part last because people be like, because that's what made me leave. That's what I was like. And his daughter, he that's only, what did it? That's, that's what, what made did me it? leave. He, and he, look, his wow. daughter's mom was black. He only dated black women. He, right. my, he was like a, he wasn't one of those who was act like he was just himself, which is what I appreciated about him. But he was like the John B always had the edge of, you know, had the nice beard, wore the Jordans, the polo shirt, stuff like that. Had the nice car, wore the good cologne. Like he, he had a certain swag about him. It wasn't that I'm trying to be, right. this is right. just who I am. So right. yes, he called me a nigger. So through the course of that relationship, when he was calling me bitches, I would also be a dumb black bitch, a worthless black right. bitch. So abuse is terrible regardless of who's saying it, how it's happening. But when you have, when you're a black woman and you have this white man telling you that you're a worthless black bitch, that is a whole different level of degrading. Like it, like on top of, so that's what made me leave. Wow. So only, um, and respecting your time, because I know you have another engagement. Oh, that got um, pushed out. So we good. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, so we, we, can, we can talk. Then. Okay. Yeah. So, because, I mean, I guess, you know, everybody talks about the low point or the rock bottom. Your rock bottom was like words. It wasn't even. Right. That's a good point. Like, I remember being interviewed and this woman, she told me, she said, so essentially, you had at this point, you have been demeaned, belittled in all different ways, not just physically, emotionally, verbally, but sexually, just all these financially, just all these different forms of abuse. And it took him saying something about your mother and your sisters. So essentially you cared more about them than you cared about yourself. You, yourself and yeah. I said, yeah. And for me, it was one thing for me to not defend myself it was another thing for me to not defend these women who meant, mean the most to me in this world and they weren't mm. here to defend themselves. So that, mm. and when you talk to survivors, a lot of them, it'll be like a something small in the grand scheme of what pushed them to have that final straw that broke the camel's back. So right. I left and I still dealt with, um, it, it wasn't an easy uh, transition because it was, you know, still calling, still popping up. I eventually got my own place. He would, he found out he would, you know, drive past my house. Um, he, you know, would call me. I remember being in my friend's wedding and taking a picture and we, the wedding was at a hotel. So we were in a dressing or we were in a hotel room taking pictures in our bridesmaid dresses. And he sent me the picture back. He texted me that picture that I had posted on mm -hmm. my Instagram and said, Oh, you still a whore. I see you in the hotels, blah, 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 blah. You know, and so it wasn't an easy um mm -hmm. transition. And even like I met up with him even like a year or so after that, I remember, and he just wanted to talk and just like, mm -hmm. oh, I miss you. I, I messed up. 
blah, blah, blah. And I met up with him to talk and he was dressed. So I got into a relationship. And that's another thing with just red flags with yourself. Like you can't just keep getting into these relationships and not healing. Like you can't, like right, obviously there's right. a void you're trying to fill. And I remember dating somebody not long after getting out of that abusive relationship. And that turned out, I luckily I recognized the red flag soon and got out of it. But when I met up with Ike, a year or so later, he was dressed just like the dude. The dude, like so, it was like you wow. know he had it. He would dress a certain. Paying attention the whole time. Yeah, so he literally head to toe was dressed like him, and I was like, wow. "What are you doing?" And he's like, "This is what you like, right? This is what." So, I eventually I left it alone for good, and when I decided to first share my story, it was probably like. About a year and a half, two years later, at this point, nobody had seen or heard from Beautiful Disaster. And mm. I hit up a friend and I said, look, I, I'm ready. Like, I know you got an open mic spot. I need to get this off my chest. And it was just to heal me. I was so broken. Right. I was so angry and not knowing, not saying to myself, like, this is trauma. Like, you went through trauma. You're experiencing PTSD. You have triggers. You're depressed. You have anxiety. All these things. So she was like, yo, we, you know, where have you been? Nobody knew. Mm. And I went and the first time I did it, I just broke down. I was like hyperventilating on that stage. Of course, of course. But what was supposed to, I found help heal me. And I just thought I was just getting this off my chest. People started coming up to me like, oh, my daughter's going through this. My sister, I'm going through this, my brother. And then I started getting asked to speak more and more. So it just became this thing. That's why you might see me always post this hashtag. I will not shut up because I used to always be like, yo, shut up. Nobody want to hear your poetry. Nobody cares what you have to say, blah, blah, blah. So poetry, writing, that's what helped saved me essentially from myself. So I just started speaking out more about it. Um, I started speaking at churches and schools and shelters and out in the community. And at the time I was working for this law firm and um, I remember wanting to not be at the law firm anymore. I said, I, you know what? I want to do more. I got, I'm supposed to, this is what I'm supposed to do. And I started applying at jobs for like shelters and prosecutor's offices and things like that. And I kept getting denied because I didn't have a degree and they were telling me that I didn't have the right experience. And I'm like, <laughs> I lived it. Like right. I lived it and survived it. So found out that the law firm I worked for, it turned out they did small business setup, nonprofit setup. And I went to them and I said, I want to start a nonprofit organization. What do I need to do? And what actually that's like set it off for as far as me starting out was this young woman. She reached out to me and she had saw like a clip of me performing on social media or something. And she said, I'm living in my car with my daughter. I just escaped. I just want to know how you did it. She didn't ask me for money. She didn't ask me for nothing. She just said, how did you do it? And I said, look, I had her meet me at the hotel that the main hotel that I used to escape to all the time, the little $65 a night hotels. And the same guy who used to work the front desk years ago when I would go there, he was still there. He's still there now. And yeah. And when I brought her in and he saw me, so she was looking at me kind of like, you don't look like you would go through something like that, you know? And when he said to me, he was like, oh my gosh, I haven't seen in a, in a lobby full of people. I haven't seen you in years. You damn near used to live here. And then her eyes got really big and 
she understood. And to this day, me and her are friends. Beautiful. She's happy, healthy. She's a caterer. She she caters for a lot of the events I do now. So it's like mm. full circle, you know how it comes back. But right. um, the law firm I worked for, worked, worked for, they helped me start my nonprofit. And uh, it's just been, I mean, it's going to be six years old in August. And um, I haven't stopped since. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Now, so were you writing and journaling the entire time or did you stop <sighs> so, writing? That's a great question. Uh, at the time I stopped because the first thing I stopped was he um, told me I had to choose between the open mics and him. Right. So I stopped going right. to open mics. I stopped performing. And one of my closest male friends, phenomenal poet, spoken word artist, like we would talk all the time. And I remember he had found like text messages between me and him in my phone. And mind you, this is like one of my best friends at the time. And we got into a fist fight over it. And so I called my friend and I said, if you value my life, you will never call me again. And we didn't talk for two years and until wow. I called him. And wow. I said, you, you, you will never call me again. And you will never tell anybody that I asked you to, to not talk to me. Like we will just not, you just, we're just dead in it right here. And wow. he never, he did not call me. And um, it wasn't, he didn't, so he didn't know why. And for two years, we didn't talk. And um, that's something I always mm. regret because our relationship never, never got back to what it was. Um, and so I, and then I stopped writing because it was like, if I put down on paper what was happening to me, then it made it real. So if I said, oh, I got strangled today. If I said, oh, he, he harassed me because I didn't, I didn't answer his phone when I was in Walmart and he wanted me to meet him to show him my Walmart receipt to show him that I was really in Walmart. Like if I wrote this stuff down, then it made it like, Oh, this is, this really, you really going through this and you're really accepting it. So mm -hmm. I thought, I wish I hadn't stopped writing. That's another regret. I, so I just de dealt with it. I remember writing suicidal no like notes to my, my mother and my sisters and my dad and my kids saying, I can't do this anymore. I wrote mm. those, mm. but, um, no, I started didn't write. So. Wow. And so I guess one, if there's anything fortunate, it seems like one fortunate thing was that your kids weren't exposed. Right. But the thing to is, the thing but they is, know, they knew. And my right. son years later would tell me, even though, and I think we, me and him, we dated for five years and I never had him around my kids. And that's a, that's, I mean, that should be, if you're not comfortable having someone you're dating for five years around your kids and my son still knew something was wrong. Years later, he would tell me, he said, you were depressed. You were always crying. You were a totally different woman. Wow. You were a totally different woman than you are now. So he still knew something. He used to hear us arguing. He said on the phone and hear him yelling at me, but they, they physically didn't see anything. Um, and I got really good at doing makeup and covering bruises and smiling and acting like everything was okay. But I used to pray to God, like, yo, don't wake me up. Don't, I don't, I just need to die peacefully. I, my kids are going to be good. I got a plan for them. And I would be so mad when God would wake me up. Sometimes it would be super aggressive, his wake up, because it would be very sunny outside and the birds would be chirping and life was just 
the world was beautiful outside. And I would be like, all right, God, all right. Like, I thought I told you I'm done with all this. I was so angry at him. I say, why me? Why me? And now I know, like, it's not that Mm -hmm. I deserve to go through it, but I know why I went through it. And it was so I could be where I am today. And it's crazy because after getting out that relationship, I found this box of journals that I had from like, books from when I was like eight, nine, 10 years old, 15, 16. And there was a journal from entry from when I was like a teenager. And I said, when I grow up, I was like mapping out my life. I think my dad had moved to VA at this point. I said, I'm going to move to Norfolk, Virginia, and I'm going to work with abused women and kids. And I was like 16, 17 years old. Wow. Look at that. Mm -hmm. Look at that. And shortly after starting my nonprofit, I got a job with a local prosecutor's office. It was in Norfolk. And I was a victim witness advocate working with abused women, men, kids. So I got to see a different side. So my nonprofit is what's called a community-based agency. Your loyalty is to the community, um, as most nonprofits are with law, with prosecutor's office, law enforcement, that's systems-based. So your loyalty essentially is to the system. So I got to see a different side. I got to go to court. I was going to court four to five days out the week and I would watch victims lie on a stand. Um, We would listen to 911 tapes, watch body cam footage. And they would be like, that's not me. I, I mean, I remember watching a body cam video in court and this girl, she's covered in blood and he had strangled her. Her boyfriend had strangled her to the point she urinated, defecated on herself. And she's in this video. You see, she has no pants on and you see the cops. So you, you were looking at it from the cops body cam footage and she's on a stand saying, that's not me. And we're, we're seeing, no, right. this is you. You know what wow. I mean? Listening to 911 calls, kids calling 911. So it was just a whole different side that I learned. And I got to see this where the system's flawed, where abusers get, you get a slap on the wrist, like here in VA, you know, I, I didn't realize you could do so much and it would be a misdemeanor. And then here, mm-hmm. you only got to serve half your time for a misdemeanor. So you get a year, you only got to do six months. If you've been in jail, excuse me, for three months, you get out in three months. So you, you would just watch people just get off. But then you, at the same time, you would watch victims like be on the stand and just like, nah, that ain't, that ain't happened. I tripped. I fell. We good. You would watch them walk in a courtroom, holding hands with the abuser. And I would see good cops who really put their all into trying to help the survivor and then said, you know, maybe they just got off the midnight shift and now they're at court eight o'clock in the morning just to watch them say, ah, nah, nothing happened. And then the case gets thrown out. But then I learned of bad cops where they part of the problem, you know what I mean? Or they didn't help or they didn't know how to be empathetic or they didn't. And and I, and I've experienced both when I was in my situation, the good cops, the bad Mm -hmm. cops. So I learned about the flawed system. And then eventually after leaving the prosecutor's office, worked for a police department and like helped inspired and helped them create their domestic violence unit that they have now, which just turned two years old. And so I was in a special victims unit. So seeing a whole different, now I'm seeing a different side. Now it's not just the prosecutors and being in court. Now I'm seeing 
there were times when we, me and my partner had to respond to the scene. I remember responding to a hostage situation. I'm like, what y'all want us to do? Like we got the cops got on bulletproof vests. They got tax squad. They got drones. They got, they, they were armed like the full gear. And we got on blazers and ballet flats and we out there and you got the, the you got people on the balconies. Like this was like the hood hood. They on the balconies recording and then you mm. got cops like, hey, Nisha. Hey. And I'm like, yo, don't say my whole name out here. Like, what are we doing? But and I'm looking That's like y'all all covered up. I don't have a bulletproof on. And right. Domestic calls are the most dangerous calls for cops to respond to. So I just I learned a lot. I learned a lot where it's flawed, where it works. And just being that survivor, turn advocate, turn activist, working in the prosecutor's office, working in the police department, having my nonprofit. Yeah, it's a lot that needs to be changed. And so um, inevitably, you felt that um, you would be more effective on the community side. Yeah. And running a nonprofit as opposed to being like part of the bureaucracy or. Yes, because one, I was draining. I was killing myself because mm. imagine going to court when I was in the prosecutor's office every day. And then I was calling my own clients on my lunch break, then getting off work and dealing with my clients. So essentially I saw domestic violence all day, every day. And then working for the police department, responding to scenes, um, talking to victim survivors all day, then getting off work doing the same thing. So I was compassion fatigue is real when you just don't have it any burnout, you don't have it anymore to give. And then it was that, like you said, bureaucracy, because working for the system, you know, they watching your social media pages. I'm vocal about things. So working for the police department, I felt like I started subconsciously censoring myself. So it's like, I didn't want to talk too much about black lives matter on social mm. media. I didn't want to, um, I mean, DV police for amongst police, they're, they're the biggest profession as far as having domestic violence, like right, police right, officers. Right, so right, I couldn't really right. talk about that. Um, then they would say things like, you know, oh, you know, I was always on the news for my nonprofit organization, but it's like, oh, just watch, make sure like, you know, it's fine that you're doing these interviews, just run it past us before you do it because you don't want to say something that's going to make the chief mad, you mm. know? And I'm like, not for nothing. The last time I worried about making some white man mad was in, when I was in my abusive relationship. So I'm not going to censor myself. So it's just little things. It was it was a conflict of interest. If someone from the city that I, as far as the police department where I worked in, I couldn't grow, couldn't help them. Because right. if they had an open case that the police department or the prosecutor's office was handling, then it was a conflict of interest for my right. organization to assist them. So I had to turn people away that I know I could have helped. You know what I mean? I had to I don't like explaining myself too much. So now you got me. I'm at work. Y'all want me to explain what Grow is doing? No, I'm not going to do that. So right. I had to separate it. And the goal was to um, is to do Grow full time. So I had to take a step back from the police department. Once I left there, I was able to get my own office here, as you can see where I am. And uh, yeah, so the goal is to do this full time. Well, so let's talk about the work that Grow is doing talk yeah. about the programs yeah. um the mission just tell me everything about about grow okay so grow is like i said it's a nonprofit organization 501c3 based out of va um i used to also do it in jersey too but it was 
very difficult. It's already difficult doing it here with the little time I have. It's very difficult to do it in Jersey as well. But we, I was proud of the time where we was able to assist survivors in Jersey too. Um, the the future goal is to be able to have an office up in Jersey as well. But we operate, I say our mission is to connect survivors with the resources needed to live a life free from abuse. And we kind of work in the gray area, so to speak. Like we talked about how when I called the shelter that time and they told me that I wasn't in imminent danger, you know, so there's so much gray area when it comes to survivors, victims and crisis. So our programs, we have the crisis intervention program. And part of that is the homelessness or crisis intervention. So we have the homelessness prevention. So if a victim survivor contacts us and says, hey, I just got into it with my husband or I just got into it with my wife or whatever, I, I called the shelter. They're full. I can't go. But I'm, I'm living in my car. I got my kids. Then we're able to put them in a hotel for like the goal is for like 72 hours because, again, we're a small nonprofit. And in that 72 hours, we advocate behind them. We work a lot with the agencies in the community. So I'm going to call up like, hey, this is Nisha Wickrow. We got this survivor. We determined that they are in imminent danger. We got them in a hotel from Friday to Monday. Can y'all pick up Monday going forward? Y'all have the shelter. Can y'all do that? Sometimes it works. Sometimes it's like, and then COVID didn't help because it just, really depleted a lot of the resources, but it's like, all right, yeah, we got you. Um, there's been times we've had to have a family in a hotel for two weeks. One time it was a month and that damn near killed us financially. But if I can help keep a survivor, especially with their children or their pets or whatever off the street, then we're going to do that. There's a survivor sustainability. So you have people, maybe they got out, but they don't have money. They don't have food. They don't have toiletries. They Their cell phone got broken in the last incident. They need to get their locks changed. Their tires got slashed. Their door got kicked in. So we partner with people like um, people who can fix tires or like replace tires, people who can fix a door, fix that window, getting new phones for people, getting out phone cards so you can, or get a burner so you could throw away, get rid of the phone that they're tracking. Um, we help with, we have a counseling program where we do a support group now monthly. It's every third Saturday. I got into boxing once I left that abusive relationship. So boxing. I saw very, it. I saw I'm it. nice, right? I'm nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got hands. You got hands. <laughs> so I work very, um, me and my brothers at Matchbox Boxing. They're just, just my, some of my best friends as far as, you know, just people in this community partner. So that support group, we have counseling in the first hour and the second hour, we all box work out together, teaching them like boxing techniques, tactics. And uh, we also have the community outreach. We do a lot of outreach programs. So, and I don't like the boring, oh, let me go to this panel discussion. I'm gonna give you a bunch of flyers and some pins and then you're, I'm gonna spit a couple statistics and then you're gonna walk away and you're not gonna remember anything. No. So we, we did a spoken word play and then each person, each poet, took on a different character. So we had the victim, we had the abuser, we had society, we had the best friend, we had the, like, I mean, it was just dope. And they told a story through poetry. And then in between acts, we would have different vendors come up and talk about the resources in the community. Every summer we have a boxing event or it's called Square Up, Surviving the Ring in Yourself. So 
come out, the community comes out. We have guest speakers, it's catered, we have music, they learn boxing, we have survivors come and talk. One of my favorite events we have is called Summer Days Ice Cream Giveaway, where we rent an ice cream truck or a snow cone truck, and we we visit all of the DV shelters in the area, and we just pop up on them so the kids hear the ice cream man come in, and they can run out. And it's so funny because they really it's like they're balling. Like I'm, they're like, "What? Why? I don't have any money." And I'm like, "No, it's on us. You get what you want." So they come out with bags and they just fill in their bags up with ice cream. And it's something so small, so to speak. But you think about when we're little and you get to run to the ice cream man. And it's just one of those memories I have with my sisters and watching it, these kids who are already living in a space of uncertainty. They're living in a shelter. Don't know, you know, when they're going to leave, don't know what's going on with mommy or daddy. And they just want to come out and get ice cream. So we do that. So that's actually starting next week. And between June and July, we'll be touring like the different cities and just pulling up with the ice cream truck. So the the survivors, it can range anything from just some of them just need hotel stay and they need to get connected to that shelter. And we call it like the pass of the time because we don't have the manpower. Me and myself and my team, we all still work. I have outside employment. So our hours aren't as like nine to five, like all the other agencies, or we don't have the 24 hour hotline. So we connect them with those resources and then pass the baton. And if they need us again, then they'll reach back out. Sometimes they just need someone to talk to. Like the young lady I spoke to yesterday, she's like, I just need someone to talk to. Sometimes it's helping them get out of here. We just a couple of weeks ago helped the survivor. She got out of state and, and she's back with her family. And she, before that, she had been calling all these different agencies, like trying to get help. But it was like, oh, you know, you're not in imminent danger or whatever. But we we can't just go off of that. Um, in transparency, I had a client recently. She wasn't considered imminent danger because it was verbal, verbal threats. It was um, the words the the some some of the threats weren't blatant even though she knew it was threats if you tell it to somebody else they may be like well that don't sound so bad you know and we had I remember we had a conversation for like two hours and I was like do you need me to call the shelters for you like do you need me to advocate for you and she was like no I just got to play the game a little longer I just got we were working on a safety plan because most times you can't just get up and leave it is very imperative it's important that you have a safety plan in place so that you can leave as safely as possible. Um, okay. And she told me that she just needed to play the game a little bit longer. She's like, I just gotta just, I'm walking on eggshells, but I just gotta be quiet. I just, so she was saving her money. She was working behind the scenes. I remember going to Jersey. This was a couple of months ago. And when I came back from Jersey, I saw that I had a missed call from her. So the day I went to call her back, um, I saw the news. He had killed her over the weekend. Wow. Wow. So it's like, you got this woman, she's not from the outside looking in. Oh, it's just the words. It's just, he hadn't put his hands on her in a, in a while. So she's not in that much danger. It wasn't blatant. I'm going to kill you, but it was enough that she knew that something was coming and he killed her. And I was messed up for a minute. Like, cause I'm like, I missed her call. Like, what could I have said? Maybe I should have pushed harder to get her in a shelter, but. Wow. That, that, so 
and even when you spoke um, in the beginning about these uh, red flags and, you know, when I think about your specific situation and your kids and I think about like my own personal situation, my own personal life. And, you know, my mom was never like a victim of abuse per se. Um, but the man she was seeing, even for me as a 10 year old, as an 11 year old, I saw those red flags immediately. And as a child, you're not always the best at articulating what you see and you're the easiest to get ignored. I'm like the baby in the house. And, um, I never, I don't think I've ever told this story like on a platform or anything, but I remember being like 10, 11 years old and this man had spare keys to the house. Like he had his own keys to our house. And I remember taking the key off of his keychain and hiding it. Mm. And because it was just like, he shouldn't have a key. Right. You know what I mean? And. I got in trouble for that. And it was like, you know, just I would do things, you know, if um, he would give my mom a ride to work and I would tell my mom, like, you don't need a ride to work. Like, you can take a cab. Like, there's no mm. reason. You know what I mean? Because I just, in hindsight, I saw him getting more and more leverage, you know, through the, through any time he showed up to do something, you know, paint the house, fix the steps, do this. He was just, he became like anything she needed, he would be the person to get it done. And so that isolation that you talk about, like becoming, he did it through like service. So it's like, there's no need for you right. to call anybody else to do anything. I would do right. all of it. Right. And the first time I can recall, because again, I'm, I'm younger. My brother may know different things in terms of like words and conversations. I know that there was a situation, I guess, where there was some jealousy going on about a coworker at my mom's job. There was, so there was that going on. And, but the first time I know him to have put hands on her was when he murdered her. So, just when you said that and just for everybody out there, just know that it could seem like it's not right. a dire situation until it's a dire situation. Right. And so do not ignore any signs. Do not ignore any red flags because it doesn't have to be um, your situation where it was multiple times of physical right. abuse and you were able to get out. Sometimes it's the first physical right. abuse that's the last physical right. abuse and the, the, the victim doesn't get right to have another opportunity. Right. And one, I, I appreciate you sharing that with me because that's, yeah, you bring up valid points because when I talk to people, particularly women, and I say, when would, when would you say the abuse started? And nine times out of ten, they're like, well, the first time he hit me or the first time she's hit me or whatever was here. 
was this day or around this time. I said, okay, but when is the first time they called you a bitch? Or when is the first time they punched a wall or, or knocked over um, furniture? When is the first time they told you you can't wear that outfit? You know, you can't hang out with your friends. When is the first time they started going through your phone, monitoring where you go, or telling you you can't, you got to delete all your friends of the opposite sex on social media? When is the mm. first time that you realize that you feel crazy, that they're making you feel like you can't, you got to question everything that you walk on eggshells? When did all that happen? And then it's different because we don't right. identify. Even when I was in my abusive relationship and I got physical, it got physical. I didn't identify it as abuse still because I fought back. And I hear that often. Like, oh no, I fight. Like everybody fights. You know, everybody, everybody argues. I, I've said it prior to getting into abusive relationship. I wish somebody would put their hands on me. I'd be out. I had this whole misconception of what a victim quote unquote looked like. Um, mm. But they look like everybody. Right. They, and I remember hearing someone say um, they have no, the domestic violence has no zip code. It's everywhere, you know, and it's a good segue, good point into the different types of abuse because it's not, sometimes you will have people who never get a hand laid on them and they are in extremely dangerous situations. You mm. know, um, we have the, of course we have the physical abuse, the bruises, if someone's pushing you, hitting you, spitting on you, pulling your hair, you know, knocking you down, physical abuse. I, I don't think we take how seriously strangulation is. As I mentioned earlier, if your partner strangles you, you're 10 times more likely to be killed. And mm. people confuse choking and strangulation, but the difference is choking is that there's an obstruction within your throat, within your windpipe. So think of choking on food or water or whatever you swallow wrong, you're choking. Strangulation, your breathing is being impeded outside. So there's an obstruction mm -hmm. outside. So that's the difference between the strangulation and the choking. And the like you said, with, with your mother, the first time it was physical was the last time for her, you know? And how I mentioned the first time it was physical for me, I was strangled. Sometimes the first time someone's, if it's physical with someone, it just might be a push, a little shove or whatever. And you think, oh, it's not that serious. We're not thinking, oh, strangulation. I didn't pass out or anything. But I remember being at this conference and this guy was like, you think about a lion chasing his prey. You never see a lion grabbing its prey by the ankles. Like mm -hmm. they're going for the throat. So anybody that can put their hands on your throat is telling you, I can and I will take your life. All they, all they got to do is squeeze a second too long and it doesn't have right. you don't even have to feel that it doesn't even have to happen right then and there you can die from strangulation from effects of strangulation days months later like it's mm. it affects you neurologically it affects you. you can have you know everything from seizures to like i mean not just passing out it not just the the bruises or anything like it literally has affects you different parts of your body and your brain even days, months after those incidents. So just imagine if you just getting strangled over and over. But we have, like I said, the physical abuse. You got the verbal abuse. Somebody's calling you out your name. They disrespecting you. They belittling you. You have the emotional abuse, how you're made to feel when you're going through the all the other forms of abuse. So if you feel worthless, if you're feeling like embarrassed, humiliated, you're feeling, you know, belittled and all of that, that's where that emotional abuse comes in. That psychological abuse, you're really questioning 
your judgment. You feel like you're crazy. I had a woman in my office a couple months back and she asked me if I saw bruises on her neck. And I did. And I told her I did. And she broke down crying. And she broke down crying because her husband had convinced her that the bruises weren't there, that she imagined it. So she would be mm. looking in the mirror and he's like, I don't even see anything. You tripping, you're so dramatic, you're overreacting. And of course you want to play the victim. You want to make it about you. So when I told her, I see them because I did, because they were there, it validated for her that she wasn't crazy. And she broke mm. down in this office. So gaslighting is such a real thing because you're, you really feel like you're losing it. And it's actually based off a play from 1938, which got later turned into a movie where this guy tries to convince his wife that she's crazy so she can go on a psych ward so he can get all her money. But it just goes to show like the different things he's doing throughout the play slash movie to make her feel like she's losing her mind. Digital mm -hmm. abuse is very prevalent, particularly amongst our youth because right. they're always right. on their phone. So digital abuse, if somebody is checking, taking your phone, um, checking it without, you know, demanding your passwords to your emails, to your social media, to your uh, phones. They are embarrassing you on social media, posting things, you know, belittling you um, publicly via digital methods. If people are using tracking devices, the things I've seen. I, I noticed that when I um, logged on to your site, a pop-up. Yes. Yes. And I was, I never even thought of yes. that. Like if someone's trying to reach out to you and they're being tracked by their, yes. Yes. you so know, you, partner. Yes. You got to put like that, like, look. So if you hit that escape button, then it takes you to weather.com or something like that. Wow. I, I might change it to where it just goes right to Google or something or something more. Because how often do you see people on weather.com? So I may take it to <laughs> somewhere where it's just like, yeah, all right, let true. me go more, some something more common. But digital abuse, GPS trackers, ring app, mm. women who can't leave their house because their partner is watching them on a ring app. Like, I'm going to see you when you leave. Oh, you was outside talking to the mailman for too long. I'm going to beat you when I wow. get home. Uh, wow. tra GPS trackers. There was a woman where she had, he put an Apple watch, like, on the exhaust, something under her car. Like, it was in a wheel well, like, of her car. So he tried, he was just popping up at different places and it was three different times, three different tracking devices on your cars. You know, um, when I worked for the police department, there was a case where this woman could not figure out, she, she could not figure out why her ex knew everything that was going on, everything that she was doing. Um, and then there was like an issue with her TV turned out. This man had a camera in her TV. So she couldn't figure out why she couldn't change the channel. Oh, because there's a, there's a, he had rigged it. So he was, her TV was in her bedroom. He watched everything. So you got digital abuse. So like the tracking devices, the Apple tags now is real big because it's supposed to be where you can find your phone or whatever, your keys with this Apple tag. But all you got to do is slip it in somebody's purse, slip it anywhere. Mm. It's so small. Track them. So, I mean, we're going to spend the majority of this time uh, advocating for the survivors mm -hmm. and those um, currently going through it. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, as a community, I mean, just as a nation, as a society at, in, in general, but as a community, you know, and even outside of domestic abuse, we talk about domestic violence, just domestic terrorism, just all of it. 
um, and his connection to mental health mm-hmm. and um, just what we have right now as a country that is just seems to be, yeah. you know, going through something um, mentally. What, like, any insight from your work <laughs> into, like, how and why we are finding this just seems to be accelerated and the violence seems to be accelerated. Um, I looked at some of the statistics on your website. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, you know, like I said, from my personal situation, it was very triggering. You know, three women are murdered every day. Mm-hmm. Um, one in four women, uh, I think you said one in seven men mm-hmm. are in some type of abusive relationship. Just like what can we speak to in terms of like why? Uh, that's a loaded question. So yeah, about three women are murdered every day. You got one in three women, one in four men who are in abusive relationships and you have or have experienced a form of abuse. You got one in four women and one in seven men who are in severe intimate partner violence relationships. You got kids, 1.5 million high school students in the U.S. per year have been purposely hit, kicked, pushed. They're in abusive relationships as well. So it's, it's happening to our teens. It's happening to our youth. It's happening to black, white, old, young, whether you're rich, poor, master's degree, GED or whatever. I think we are at a place where so much is normalized, you know, so much. It's like, I don't, when I was young, we were young, like I couldn't log on a computer and see somebody just getting shot. And that was just like, but you know, my daughter, she's 15 years old. She's watched the George Floyd. She's watched, she's seen your, you see videos of people getting killed on Facebook live, whether it's domestic violence or not, you know, it's just the things that we're just ingesting and it's becoming, we're becoming desensitized, I think, as a society to what mm. domestic violence is, what violence as a whole is. When I first started this work, and I remember working in the prosecutor's office, and I would see pictures of Black eyes, and I would immediately, I would have to go take a step away from the desk. I'll have to go catch my breath or whatever. Now, I've seen so much. I've heard mm. so much that I'm talking about it like it's normal. And the person I'm talking to is like, oh, and I got to remember like, oh, just because that's normal in my world, in it isn't world. normal right. for the person that I'm talking to. Um, in the black community, people of color, like we don't, we need to normalize getting help, mental health. We need to normalize that trauma doesn't, you don't have to learn to function in dysfunction. You know, we don't, we grew up and we grow up in a, what happens in the home stays in the home. Don't be telling anybody our business. You don't really see black men, you know, going to therapy or thinking they need therapy. We're, we're raising our boys that you're not supposed to cry. You ain't supposed to be scared. You got a man up. I can't give you affection because you, you know, I'm going to kiss my daughter, but I'm not going to kiss my son because you, you, now I'm going to give you a handshake. That's it. You're not getting this affection from me. So we're training a lot of us. We, we grow up and men think that they have to hide their feelings they think that they can't express when they're sad or when they're hurt or when they're angry. And then when you're finally, you're just bubbling up and then it just explodes. You know what I mean? And then women, we 
I talk about, I say in a black community, black and brown community, you know, we, we don't like to get the cops involved. We don't want to put another black man in jail. So we may just take it, or maybe we've seen it happening in our own families. So this is what's normal. It's, it's not, like y'all, y'all abnormal. Healthy is abnormal because if you're not calling me out my name or hitting me or yelling or putting your hands on me, then then there's an issue there. Then you must not love me there, as much. I mean, I've I've seen right. I've seen relationships, and where you know, if it's not. A little, you know, some, and you yeah. see it online. Even people, if he, if he's not a little toxic, he don't really love me, or right. Right. you know. And so we, yeah, we invite that type of attention sometimes right. in relationships from our partner. Um, man, I want to go back because I think if we can, right? Mm -hmm. Prevention is is the key. Right. We want. We, we don't want anyone to have to endure this from the first place right. to even become a survivor. So I think going through those red flags mm -hmm. and those signs, again, is important. But I also want to deal with, um, from a prevention standpoint, mm -hmm. and just what makes us vulnerable what makes us susceptible for these type of individuals to bring these because at the end of the day and i'm sure and you'll um expound on this the when you stepped out of there and the work that you had to do to make sure that this would never happen to you again mm -hmm. you then had to deal with yourself you had yes. to start to heal stuff that had nothing to do with dude you had to begin healing and sewing up in yourself so that you would just want more for yourself right, right? like you right. would just you would you would see yourself worthy of more right. and you would see that like i could see that coming a mile away now like i'm not engaging in any right. of that and so talk about you know the things that we need to be healing in ourselves, the things we need to be sewing up in ourselves as individuals so that if there's even a hint of this type of behavior coming from someone that we're in a relationship with, we know to go the other way right, ASAP and not let it fester into something that then becomes uncontrollable. Right. So another great question. Um, I'm still doing the work, you know, healing is an everyday journey. Mm. I always say it's not linear. It's very up and down. Um, things still trigger me. I've learned to recognize some triggers and then there's some things that just you don't prepare for and you get triggered and then you got to deal with it at the moment. Um, I know for me, I, I think it's important that we take time to heal and we, we have to know that we're deserving of healing. We're deserving of doing the work. And we have to know that the work is going to be hard. It's not like I can wake up and say, oh, today's June 4th. I think I'm going to be healed today. Like, no, mm. we're, you're going to have good days, great days. And you're going to have days that suck in that process. There's days I was like really looking forward to this interview, you know, this discussion. But then there's been times when 
I didn't want to talk about it. I, I people, I'm like, oh God, I got to tell this story again, and it's just it's just draining sometimes. And you got to be mindful of that. You got to give yourself grace. So whether we got to find out what helps us, what helps bring us to that peace, what is helping us find ourselves and love ourselves. So when you're getting out of a traumatic situation, whether it's domestic violence, whether it's, you know, you lost someone close to you, whether it's a divorce or whatever, you have to give yourself time to heal. And whether that's therapy, I, I just started going to therapy, I would say maybe about six months ago. And it's the best decision I could have done for myself. So I know that boxing helps me. I know writing helps me. I know therapy helps me. So you got to identify what works for you and stick to it because you deserve to stick to it. The, The broken version of you deserves to see and be the healed version of you. Healing is beautiful. You know, just again, relaying this story. Sometimes I wish I could go back and hug that woman that I was, but I know that I had to be that woman so that I can be this woman today. Um, We have to know that we can't change people. You can't love someone hard enough. You can't, you know, like someone hard enough. You can't, maybe if I'm more of this or less of that, they have to choose and make the conscious decision to be a better person. They have to do the work necessary to do it. The only thing you have control over is the type of person that you're going to be. And we don't have to let our past, our childhoods, our bad relationships dictate who we will be tomorrow. Will it play a role? Does it make you the makeup of you and what you've gone through in these experiences? Of course. But, you know, just because you grew up in an abusive relationship while you're grew up in an abusive household, while you're more likely, if you grew up in a violent household, to be a victim or a perpetrator of abuse yourself, that doesn't mean that you have to be. Like, it's, it's a choice. You don't have to become that abuser. There's plenty of people who have never abused anyone who grew up in abusive households and made that choice to, to break that cycle with them. Mm-hmm. And then there are others who grew up and that's what they know as to be loved. That's why I'm going to show affection. And they just have not done the work, not willing to do the work, probably not ever going to do the work. You know, but that's not your job to fix just because somebody grew up that way doesn't give them a pass to treat you like crap, doesn't give them a pass mm. to make you feel a certain way. So I'll say, know that you can do the work, know that you are deserving of that work that needs to be done. As far as society, we got to be, we got to stop being judgmental. We got to educate ourselves. Again, I was that person who, oh, I wish somebody would put their hands on me. I'm out. I have said to a friend, in an abusive relationship before I got into my own. Girl, why don't you just leave? What you doing? Like, I have said that and I cringe even just thinking about it. But if you know better, you do better. We have mm-hmm. to identify that abuse doesn't always just look at, look like what we think it's supposed to look like. You know, financial abuse is prevalent in 99% of domestic violence cases. I ask people like, yo, if I took your wallet, I took your debit card, your credit card, you got no gas in your car, you got to get to your family out of state. I took all of your access to financial resources. I made it so that you lost jobs, your credit sucks or whatever, but you got to get up and you got to leave right now. How many of you could just get up right now and just go? Mm -hmm. And you can't. So we got to educate ourselves on what domestic violence looks like, what it doesn't look like, the things that we can do to help. If somebody comes to you and says, I'm in an abusive relationship, I don't know what, what to do. Don't laugh, first and foremost. Listen to them without judgment you know, let them know 
I'm here to help. Whether you offer a hotline number, whether you're looking at how the safety plan, which there's tips on our website, whether you're keeping an emergency bag for them at your house, whether you stash your $5 here, $5 there for them so that they kind of have a little bit of money when they leave. If you're babysitting the kids so they can go file a police report or get a protective order, there's just so many things that we can do to be a support system. But at the same time, understanding that you can't save that person. You can't make anybody who is not ready to leave an abusive relationship leave. So it can be a very frustrating thing. It can be very heartbreaking. And in that, you got to remember self-care for yourself and just to not turn your back on them and just be mindful of your own safety and just know, look, I'm here for you. Don't say things ever like, why don't you just leave? You can say, I'm concerned for you. I'm worried about you and or the kids and or the pets. And what are the barriers preventing you from getting the safety and how can I help you overcome those barriers? Essentially, you're saying, I want you to leave, but one is very welcoming. I'm, I'm willing to help you get to that point. The other is just like, the wall is going to go up. Why don't you just leave? You're being dumb. You, it must not be mm-hmm. that bad if you keep going back. Like we can't, right. we can't do that. Right. Right. Wow. Wow. So what can um, us as supporters, mm-hmm. as advocates, like, or just, you know, observers, family members, loved ones, friends, like you just named a few, but like, what can we do, I guess, to help you in your advocacy? Um, I assume it takes money yeah. to, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, put folks up in hotels and, yeah. and, and, and maneuver around. So we got to get you some money. Yeah. So um, I guess we'll add the donation links and everything yeah. um, to this. And I'll also on record say, that um, anyone who goes to the People versus Anti People or TB, TPVTap.com and buys any merch, um, proceeds from that merch will be going to oh, wow. uh, the Grow Foundation because, um, yeah, we can't have you out here doing this by yourself. Um, we appreciate you, obviously. And um, it's a remarkable story, it's a remarkable journey. And I, yeah, we honor you. Just, you. you know what I mean, for taking the initiative and being the change that you want to see. It's easy to go through something, um, survive it and say, well, I'm good, but I don't want to go back right. in that. But, you know, so to speak, you're going back in the burning yeah. house and trying to save yeah. other folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, you know, that's to be honored. And so anything that we can do on our end to, um, you know, help you facilitate the healing of others. You know, you, you, you got our, we got your back on that. Um, and just, I guess before we close out, before we wrap up, um, anything that you want to say to anyone going through something right now mm-hmm. and, you know, like, I see you got the Wonder Woman tat. Oh yeah. And I'm assuming I'm assuming the Wonder Woman tat came post yeah. survival. And yeah. so like what would the Wonder Woman tat Nisha <laughs> say to, you know, the Nisha in 2011 or 2012? Yeah. And Wonder Woman, she dope. Because you know she got a black twin sister named Nubia. So that's why that's a, <laughs> that's, that's so like I got the little N above it. So it's like that's black woman, one black woman. Um 
there's so much. I would just say that, you know, there there is hope. It sounds cliche. Um, I hear often like people telling me, oh, I got to go back because of this. I got to go back because of that. You know, I got to go back because of kids. I have nowhere to go. I have this. And I understand all these barriers. I really do. Um, but I need you to ask yourself why you deserve to go back. And when I ask survivors that, they really don't have an answer. Mm. And I just need whoever's going through it, whether woman, man, transgender, like I said, black, white, old, young, it doesn't, it doesn't matter because it affects, I've seen it all. It affects all of us. And if you're going through it, I just need you to know that you don't deserve it, that you are priceless, that those words that that person spews at you to break you down, you know, that those words that you started to believe for every hateful thing, I need you to combat it with two beautiful, positive things about yourself until you get to the point where you can believe that, look, I can do this because you can pick those pieces back up. You can put them back together. And while you may not become the person that you were before this, you can become something even better. You know, healing is beautiful and you deserve to see it for yourself. So if you need to talk, I'm here. I don't care where you are. You try, you know, like anybody can inbox me. They can message me. Um, our contact info is on Grow's website. Please follow us on social media. I mean, whatever I can do, I'll be a listening ear and we can get through it together. Mm-hmm. And is there any um, upcoming projects for a beautiful disaster? Are we going to get a spoken word project? Or... Oh, I thought you, I was like, you want me to spit right now? Um... Um, I, I mean, if you got something, I mean, we'll take it for sure. <laughs> Um, sure. I, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you want me to, but as far as beautiful disaster, I well, need you, to... you, you, you put it out there. So <laughs> now you got to do it. That's, otherwise they're going to be like, why are you, why, why are you ain't let us spit? She, she? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, as far as beautiful, I'm working on getting beautiful disaster back. I was just in Jersey a couple of weeks ago. I got to perform and be beautiful disaster. So I was like super excited. So I want to throw that out there. I do travel, whether it's traveling to come and educate in domestic violence or whatever. So I'll go to Jersey. I'll go to ATL, wherever I'm willing. So. Um, okay. And how, what's the best way to um contact you for that? Um, You can still hit me up at the, my email address is on well in Himes at Girl Foundation VA or Nisha.himes at gmail.com or any of my social media. I'll um send you my I don't know if y'all post the social media links or whatever, but we, I we got it. We oh, got okay. it. We I got mean, it. I know it's all okay. technology yeah. and stuff. Okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> so I'll just do this piece. It's one of my favorite pieces to do. And um I wrote it post that relationship and I hope it helps whoever needs to hear it. So and it's called Dear Broken Woman. So I'm like, I'm the only one in here in the building, so I guess I can get loud. <laughs> All right. Dear Broken Woman, I used to be you. Until one day, I looked into the eyes of my daughter and I decided my past wasn't worth her future. I mean, How could I teach her to stand up straight, head held high, when my own chin kissed the very ground I walked on every time I found the courage to pick myself up? How could I teach her the definition of a strong woman when my own weakness defined me in a dictionary I didn't want to read anymore? 
You see, dear broken woman, I used to be you. I used to think the world made band-aids as small as the paper cuts I should have got from writing hurtful words in journals that I never opened. And that cereal for breakfast and sometimes dinner made me less of a mother because it seemed I never had enough bread to bring home the bacon. Not much of a matchmaker. I found it hard to get into me and damn near impossible for them to stay together when they did. But learned the one thing great about reading bedtime stories in the dark is baby girl couldn't see mama's tears so easily with a flashlight and shut off notices red in the sun didn't seem so scary after midnight. I mean it when I say dear broken woman. I used to be you. I used to think having a man by my side was better than no man at all until I realized the man by my side was no man at all. Plus his shoes weren't that big anyway. Meaning, not what you're thinking, even though that part's true too, but it wouldn't take much to fill them. So rather than replacing them with another mistake, another half-assed attempt to make something real out of fake, I decided I wanted to be full. And so I feasted. And by feasted, I mean, I became so full of myself that I benched on my confidence, overindulged in my spirituality, relished in my beauty, faded bruises and all, and stuffed myself with the determination to fix me. I took every dream I ever had, pushed them inside a duffel bag engraved with my daughter's initials and carried them with me until it was safe to believe in them again. I promise you, dear broken woman, I used to be you. Until the day I looked into my daughter's eyes and realized she couldn't wait to be me. Thank you. Mm, mm, mm. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Beautiful disaster, uh, aka Nisha Himes, <laughs> founder and CEO of Grow Foundation. Yes. Um, this is major journalism. Um, this is David Tromdick Shanks. Another episode, a powerful episode. Um, peace and love, and thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you.